How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to your new X-Lapse Sunday special. Just because Major X-Lapse is, uh, well, thankfully, in the rear view, uh, doesn't mean we're done talking about something a little bit different on a Sunday. And uh, indeed, we're going to start a brand new program right now that I'm calling Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, wherein we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about Phoenix Resurrection, the return of Jean Grey, which ran from the very tail end of 2017 into uh, about a month of 2018. I think it was a weekly series. I could be mistaken, though. It might have been bi-weekly, but I know it didn't run too long into 2018 is kind of the point I'm getting at here. So let's get right on into it. Today we're going to discuss Phoenix Resurrection, the return of Jean Grey number one, cover dated February 2018. The story is called Chapter One, Frustrate the Sun. Written by Matthew Rosenberg, with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu. Inks by Jerry Allen Gillen. Colors by uh, Rachel Rosenberg. Letters VCs Travis Lanham. Edits. Whew, Christina Harrington, Chris Robertson, Darren Shan, Mark Paniccia, and Axel Alonso. So a lot of folks editing this thing. So I'm not expecting to see any sort of errors here. Uh, I'm joking, of course. Uh, cover price, $4.99, and this one went on sale on my birthday, December 27th, 2017. I turned 38 years old on that day. So let's get right on into it here. We open in a familiar neighborhood to folks who know the Gray family. We're in Annandale-on-Hudson in upstate New York. Now here we see a boy and girl riding their bikes, arguing about something silly, a dude dressed in bird feathers or something. They happen across a body of a young girl hovering just above the ground with what appears to be, uh, you know, blood pouring out of her head. It's like a puddle of blood under her head. Now, obviously, these kids can't believe what they're seeing, which, you know, I have to say to them, you just wait, because it's going to get a little bit weirder. Now, it turns out that the bleeding girl is... Zatanna? Hmm, well, okay, probably not, but uh, she speaks backwards nonetheless. The bleeding girl stands up and says, We were better off dead. But it was more like, dad, uh, retab, eru, ew. You know, backwards. Uh, the two freaked out kids and the bloody girl are then joined by another young girl. And this one has long red hair. Then the bleeding girl disappears, and the redhead is holding what appears to be a dead bird. The redhead then tosses the bird into the sky where it comes back to life and flies away. Now, the kids. They're even more freaked out at this point, and they start running away, to which the red-haired girl shouts to them to wait and to watch out. We jump ahead a few hours later, and the X-Men Gold team has arrived on the scene. They include Not-Yet-Call-Me-Kate Pride, Storm Colossus, Nightcrawler, Prestige, and Old Man Logan. Now, the local law enforcement doesn't know why the X-Men would show up to their sleepy little hamlet and tell the mutants that 
they pretty much have everything under control. Kitty explains here that their Cerebro unit pinged like crazy to direct them here. Off to the side, Rachel, Prestige, her nose begins to bleed. Kurt asks what's up, to which she recalls that she once had family who lived right in this very area. And I want to say that the Grey family were wiped out in an issue from Claremont's third go-round on Uncanny. I think it was one, if I'm remembering this right, I know that he utilized this gimmick, but I don't know if it was exactly this issue. It was like a real-time gimmick. Like, the entire issue had a clock running through it to show us how fast it happened. It was like 24 seconds or something, or 24 minutes. Maybe it was a play off the 24 TV show. I don't know. But I seem to remember this having a clock ticking through it so you could see just how quickly everything went down. Anyway, Storm inquires about the two children who were involved in the situation, and the officer's like, oh, you want to see them? They're right over there. The young boy and girl are hovering just above the ground with what appears to be very, very bloody head injuries. From here, we get a double-page spread of credits, so maybe this phenomenon isn't new to the Hawks, Pox, Docs era. Maybe this is something that Marvel's been doing for a long time, and I just never noticed it because I was never, you know, writing scripts about these books, so I kind of just went right past it. So we resume with comics at the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach. You ever notice the longer these names get, like, the less they feel like they actually mean? Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I very well might be, I think this might be when the X-Men were hanging out in Central Park. Though, in fairness, that really doesn't matter for the moment. Now, Kitty's holding a meeting to let the collective X-teams know about the weirdness going on upstate. And uh, this really isn't the greatest group shot. Um, I feel like Lionel, you might have given up halfway through this panel. It's just not the greatest group shot. Now, Kitty opens this meeting by saying that, uh, well, she doesn't have the foggiest idea what's going on and can't explain what she and the gold team saw up in Annandale on Hudson. And so she introduced Beast to try to make sense of it all. Here, we learn that despite looking as though they were bleeding profusely from the head, neither of those two children from earlier had suffered any wounds. Also, they were not the cause of the cerebro ping because neither child tested positive for the X gene. So whatever it was that Cerebro found, it's a, a new type of reading. Sabretooth then pipes in to inquire why this is such a big deal. It's just a couple of floating kids, right? Which, I mean, in the greater scheme of things in the Marvel Universe, yeah, it doesn't sound like all that big a deal, does it? Now, Kitty then reveals that whatever it was that caused this also wound up putting Rachel in the infirmary. So it's definitely some sort of juju that they're going to have to deal with. Now, Beast continues to talk and talk and talk, claiming that he created a new energy profile search for Cerebro, which combines solar radiation with psychothermal tracking. Old Man Logan thankfully says, get to the point already. And so Kitty says that this new profile has led them to three disparate locations on the globe, because of course it did. It's like the annual JLA-JSA team-ups from the uh, Bronze Age up in here. Now, the first location is the old Hellfire Club in Midtown Manhattan. The second is the Mont Francis, the Mont St. Francis Monastery in southern France. The third is the North Pole. I'm not sure if it's the magnetic north or just plain north, and I'm also not sure that that would actually matter. And so, Kitty assembles three teams to investigate each of these locations, and thankfully, these scenes will actually play out in this very book, rather than spinning off into several issues of Blue Gold and Weapon X. Magic then chimes in and asks for some clarification. You know, she wants the layman's take. Kitty and Beast have said a whole lot here, but what in the world does any of it actually mean? 
Kitty cops to it. She says, I don't know. So we're just going to try our best. So let's split up. Let's split up our teams here. First stop is the Hellfire Club, and our team includes Kitty, Jubilee, Storm, Magic, Colossus, and Nightcrawler. Next, Mont St. Francis, and our lineup here is Young Beast, Young Cyclops, Young Iceman, Young Angel, and, well, regular old Rogue. Finally, the North Pole, and I want to say that this is uh, the Weapon X team. I dropped out way before they launched the uh, new volume of Weapon X, but I think this is the team from that. Uh, it's Old Man Logan, X-23, Warpath, Sabretooth, Psylocke, and Domino. Which Psylocke? Search me, I haven't the foggiest, and I doubt it'll matter either way. I don't think she's going to be getting too much of a part in this. We jump back to Kitty's team as they enter the Hellfire Club, and it doesn't seem like anyone's there. The place just seems long abandoned, you know. Uh, Though Magic claims she can feel a presence, Nightcrawler then looks off panel and says, "Uh Uh-oh, we got company. But first, we jump to the Blue and Rogue team. They wander around the monastery for a bit before Rogue is attacked by everybody's favorite acolyte, or at least in the top three of acolytes, Seamus Mellencamp. Next stop, the North Pole. Our Weapon X team is trudging through the snow when they appear to see a figure in the distance. As they get closer, they begin to be able to make it out, and it looks like it's Wolverine. Like, young man Logan Wolverine, that is, who isn't scheduled to get his own return of miniseries for like another year at this point. Back to the Hellfire Club. Our gold team is being attacked by a bunch of Hellfire goons. You know, those, those guys in the, in the masks. You know them. They're the ones from uh, the Hellfire Club. Jubilee takes a big old bite out of one of them, because you remember, she's a friggin' vampire. She notes that these baddies ain't even human. And so, Kitty's figures that they could just ignore the kill-no-man law that won't be passed for another year and a half and just go hog-wild here, knocking these guys out. Next stop, France, where this is going to be a very frenetic <laughs> little jumping of scenes here. Uh, France, Rogue, is trying to fight off Seamus Kuga Mellencamp while keeping the all-news away, since this bad guy can steal your life force with but a touch, which is kind of her gimmick. Now, Rogue is briefly taken out, and so young Scott blasts the baddie with his optic beams. Back to the North Pole, this weird Wolverine is approaching the team, and so Domino shoots him right between the eyes. Which she shrugs off, he's perfectly fine with it. Then young man Logan absolutely starts wiping the floor with the Weapon X team. Back to Hellfire, and I am getting dizzy here. The gold team keeps fighting the hordes upon hordes of Hellfire goons when they realize that the door to the place has disappeared. Thankfully, Colossus happens to have a master key in that he can, you know, just smash through walls and stuff. Back to France, Seamus is able to nimbly dodge the tactics of the all-news and very briefly gets his gross, lizard-like hands wrapped around Hank's neck. Rogue recovers and punches Mellencamp through a nearby wall, ending the fight. Back to the North Pole, young Wolverine has taken out the entire Weapon X team and is down to he versus old man Logan. Back to the Hellfire Club, the gold team is shocked that all the goons have vanished. In France, the blue and rogue team is shocked that Seamus has vanished. And, duh, in the North Pole, Weapon X is bamboozled when young man Logan vanishes. Then all three teams look toward the sky. There's something strange going on, and whatever it is, it doesn't look good. From here, we jump to elsewhere, and we're standing outside a small roadside diner where a waitress named Gladys is seeing some of that same strangeness above. She calls over to her co-worker to come outside and get a gander at what's going on in the sky. And her co-worker just happens to be a young redhead named Jean. 
She says she's never seen anything quite like this. What this is, well, we don't quite know yet. Just as quick as it happens, it's over, and the waitresses head back inside the diner. Gladys starts telling a woman inside what they saw. Says it looked like a giant bird inside the sun. One of their regular patrons, Annie, doesn't believe her, and assumes that she'd just been getting into the rum raisin ice cream a bit too much. And so Gladys prompts Jean to back up her story. But she doesn't. Instead, Jean says that it was probably just a weird formation of clouds or something. Jean then goes to take the order of another patron, a Mr. Cassidy, who uh, we probably all recognize. And uh, this also prompted me to do a little bit of thinking about this Annie character, and, uh, yep, there's definitely one of those in Jean Grey's backstory as well. Later that evening, we follow Jean home. She passes a church that has Revelations 6-8 posted on a billboard in front of it, which uh, isn't exactly the most pleasant thing to see. Anywho, she gets home, and she's greeted by the tweeting of her pet bird, who she feeds what's either a cracker or a small pouch of chewing tobacco, I can't tell which. She's then met by her parents, and she tells them that she isn't really feeling all that well right now. In fact, she's so out of it, she'd like to skip dinner. Her folks are like, oh ho ho, you have a dinner date. And no sooner do they do so, than there's a ringing at the doorbell. And we wrap up with Jean answering the front doorbell, and we see a young fella with ruby quartz shades and a dozen roses waiting for her. Okay, so let's talk about this issue. Um, I really dug this. I really, really enjoyed this. I, you know, I can't lie, I kind of expected to enjoy it, so it's not like this was a huge surprise or anything, but this was really, really fun. Um, had a really good time with this. It's probably... The best take I've seen on the characters of this era of the X-Books. And, I mean, if you've been following along with this channel and the entire X-Lapsed pro project here, you'll know that this is the era that drove me away, right? The blue and gold, and I couldn't stand it, so I ran. And here I am, actually, almost like halfway motivated and inspired to give it another chance. Uh, it's too bad that Rosenberg wasn't writing either the blue or gold books, but... Maybe we'll revisit those down the line regardless. Now, when this was announced, like, that this series itself was going to be a thing, I was a little bit dubious, but at the same time, very, very, very curious. I wanted to know how they'd managed to bring the real Gene back, right? But I couldn't shake some gimmicky doubts. Though then again, it is worth noting that this was during Marvel Legacy, where for a hot minute the company seemed interested in embracing and celebrating their vast history. So I guess the time was right. Um, I guess I was just still feeling the burn of the blue and gold at that point to be completely objective. Uh, but I was, and still am, curious to see how they're going to pull this off. It's kind of a shame that I just couldn't get... I couldn't get past myself and give this one the, the shot it deserved back uh, when it came out uh, the first time, because... I swear it might have been just the thing to get me back into the uh, the X fold, you know, before Hox Pox Docs, right? Uh, this was this was quite this was quite good, quite good. Um, I feel like when you dedicate an entire event miniseries to something like this, you kind of have to knock it out of the park, right? Uh, this isn't just an arc between the various X books of the day, thankfully. It's instead its own thing, which will ultimately bear fruit in the rest of the X books. So, you know, I, I gotta say, expectations for this are sort of kind of high with this one here. And, uh, hey, if it's not clear, so far so good. I'm really, really digging this. 
Uh, the mystery they're building here is a lot of fun to follow. And, you know, while the three-team MacGuffin hunt, the old Justice League Justice Society annual team-up gimmick, was maybe a little bit contrived, at least it led to some interesting scenes that I'd like to know more about. And that is, of course, assuming that they weren't quite as random as they appeared to be. And I'm guessing they're not random, of course. There is got to be a reason for all three of these locations. I mean, the Hellfire Club, pretty self-explanatory for longtime X-Fans. It's pretty much where Dark Phoenix came to be, right? The, the whole corruption of Gene with uh, Jason Wingard and all that stuff led right into the uh, Dark Phoenix saga. So definitely stands to reason that that's going to be a, uh, a point of interest. The North Pole uh, played into either... You know, they, they did those post-Morrison miniseries. I think, I think Greg Pak wrote them and Greg Land either drew them or did the covers for them. They were... Like Phoenix End Song, Phoenix War Song, Phoenix something or another. There might have just been the two of them, but uh, the North Pole played into one of those back probably 15 years ago. So stands to reason that that would be a point of interest as well. The monastery in France, though, that one I'm not so sure about. Um, I know that it came up in Uncanny X-Men number 300, and it was touched upon during the Phalanx Covenant, but... I really couldn't say how it might relate to Gene or the Phoenix. Uh, I'm guessing it'll come back around to it, and I'm, I'm guessing it'll probably make sense. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that uh, how that plays out. Let's talk a little bit about our various X teams here, because um, two of these were the reason why I stopped reading these books. Um, the Blue and Gold, I did not like it. I did not appreciate that run. It was a run where, you know, I... I it's hard to really put into words. I know I've tried before, and I'm probably I probably failed many times before. But it was like the characters look familiar, but once they start talking and behaving, it's like I don't know who any of them are. Um, the blue team, especially, I feel like the blue team was perhaps the weakest, and it's actually one that I thought I was giving an unfair shake to, and I probably was. But I've gone back to X Men Gold. I'm sorry, X Men Blue number one. About two or three times, and uh, that first issue where the young X-Men fight uh, Black Tom and the Juggernaut, it's not very good. Um, And it's not that the action's bad, it's not that the art's bad, it's the dialogue. The dialogue is like if if we had a machine that measured sass and snark (laughs) and faux teen speak, um, it would break if if you set that book on it. Really, really poorly done. I just did not like any of the characters. I couldn't root for the characters. I thought they were portrayed really, really petulantly and annoyingly. Did not care for it. The only part of that issue that I actually enjoyed was, like, the last two pages of it that introduced uh, uh, Ultimate X into the uh, Marvel Universe. I thought that was pretty cool just because I'm I'm a huge lore guy. I like everything being on the table. And this was an instance of that. Here, the young X-Men were, uh... They were treated pretty well, I think. I think they were portrayed very well. They were they, they still were a little bit snarky toward one another, but it felt it felt a lot less try hard. You know, I think like we had we had Bobby telling Warren that when he walked it looked like a bird walking across a puddle or something, and that's that's kinda cute, you know, that's not you know, twenty twenty talk, you know. <laughs> that was just fun goofing, you know. Uh, the gold team here was pretty cool. I didn't have a problem with the gold team. Back in the day, and I still don't I think it's a good team to put together 
having Kitty in charge is really cool. It doesn't feel forced or anything. It just feels like the next logical step. And I, I like the way that this played out. The Weapon X team, I, like I said, I never read the Weapon X volume that spun out at this time, but it was pretty cool. I liked it. Um, I still don't know how Sabretooth is exactly on the team, and I have looked at a few of the covers of Weapon X, and I see that, like, Lady Deathstrike might be a part of it, but I'm not totally sure how that plays out, or even if I'm if I'm reading it right, or just looking at the pictures right. So I'm interested in seeing how Sabretooth wound up with the good guys, so maybe... Somewhere down the line, I'll have to dig those issues out of uh, whatever back issue bin I might stumble across them in. Um, let's go to uh, Jean the Waitress. Uh, that gave me some very uh, opening ten minutes of a Twilight Zone episode vibes. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, having Annie What's-Her-Face and Banshee in the diner was interesting as well, and I'm wondering how this will all pay off. I wonder, is this diner even a real place? I'm guessing not. Since, you know, from there we followed Jean home and found out she had a date with an also quite dead Cyclops. Uh, makes me wonder, are we in whatever the hell the White Hot Room is? Because I, I, I still don't know what the White Hot Room is. I read the Morrison run a bunch of times and I still don't quite understand it. And, you know, I probably haven't even thought of the White Hot Room in like a decade. So, whatever it is, <laughs> maybe we'll find out here. Whatever the case, though... I loved this. I'm in for the ride. I can't wait to to be no longer Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. I, I, I'm looking forward to checking this series off our list here and, uh, and getting to the bottom of it. It was great fun, and uh, I'm actually enjoying these, uh, these takes on the characters that made me run for the hills a couple of years earlier, you know? And as mentioned, it's even making me want to maybe give the color books a bit of a retry. And that speaks entirely to the talents of Mr. Rosenberg, doesn't it? Now, let's briefly touch on the art a little bit before we jam out of here. I didn't love it. I didn't love it. Um, it's odd. Before starting these X-Lapsed family of shows, I think I would have considered myself a pretty big fan of Lionel Yu's work. Now, I feel like I'm finding out I'm not. And I mean, it's good. It's good. Don't get me wrong. It's good stuff. It's just not what I'm looking for in a comic book. You know, I can't say it's bad. It's just... I don't know. I just don't like it quite as much as uh, as I might another take on it. Overall, now if you skipped this series like I did, I guess shame on us. And I'd say with cautious optimism that you might want to check this one out. I'm not entirely sure how to read Marvel's site, but if I am reading it right... Uh, Phoenix Resurrection is available on Unlimited as of this recording. So if you've got that, you'll get this. And I'd say so far it's worth your time if you're an X-Fan, lapsed or otherwise. And that is where we'll leave it today. Really, really looking forward to continuing with this series. Uh, now, if anyone has any memories or comments or concerns or whatever about this uh, episode, this issue, this series, these characters, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find. You can get me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. The entire X-Lapsed family of episodes are available at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up about X-Men comics or whatever the hell you want over at 90s X-Men on Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry, on Facebook. Yeah, 90s X-Men on Facebook. 
And you can hear the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Thousands of hours for your listening pleasure if, you're, uh, if you've got thousands of hours to spare and you can deal with my voice for as long as you've listened to it now. think that'll do it for us. Huge thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me and uh, going on this all-new, all-different voyage into Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. Uh, So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode two of Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. Had a really good time with the first issue. Let's hope that this second issue continues that trend. So let's not waste any time and get right on in. This is Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey, number two, whose cover dated March 2018. Title is Chapter Two, All Lesser Birds. Written by Matthew Rosenberg with pencils by Carlos Pacheco. Inks, Rafael Fonteras. Uh, Colors, Rachel Rosenberg, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, edits, Harrington, Robinson, Shan, Panicia, and Alonzo. Lots of editors here. Cover price, $4, and went on sale January 3rd of 2018. Now we open, and we're 254 miles above the Earth, where an astronaut is, uh, well, doing something with a satellite. Uh, what he is doing is really isn't important. It's what he sees that is, and what he sees is... You know, fire in the sky. Now, we don't get all that good a look at it, but considering our topic today, we might be able to hazard a guess as to its origins. Now, 254, they make a, uh, they really specify how far this is out, and I wonder, and this isn't me being coy or cute or anything, I honestly wonder if that number might wind up meaning something. And I only ask this because uh, in just a few pages, we're going to have our attention drawn to another number. So I don't know if that one means anything either, but hey, it's worth, uh, you know, throwing in the old uh, memory bank here. 254. Now we shift back to the elsewhere. 
Jean is sleeping in bed, but appears to be in a bit of distress. Now she mumbles to herself that it's better this way. Whether that means it's better that she's locked away in this weird elsewhere, or, as as the uh, Zatanna children said last issue, that she was better off dead, I don't know. Now as she, uh, you know, tosses and turns, the objects in her room begin to levitate before crashing down, which wakes her up. From here we get our double-page spread of creds, and now it's the next morning, and it's 7.36 to be exact. Like I said like a minute ago, I wonder if 7.36 might wind up meaning something, or maybe it does mean something and I just don't get it. Or if I'm, you know, just back to looking for symbols where none of them actually are. Anyway, the thing is, she's late for work, so she rushes outside. There, she sees that her regular landscaper has arrived to mow her lawn. And uh, that's not a euphemism, and shame on you for thinking it was. She refers to him as Jamie. Not sure if this is supposed to be Jamie Madrox. Maybe? I don't know. She seems kind of surprised to see him. She wasn't sure he'd be coming today. He just explains that he had uh, wrapped up early at Miss Levald's house, so he figured why not fit Jean's house in too. Now, Levald is kind of a deep cut, um, if it's a reference at all, that is. Uh, if it is a reference, well, you all remember that uh, Joe Casey run, right? That one that we were all looking forward to so much, but wound up being so edgy we could hardly even hold it without cutting ourselves? Remember that one? Yeah. Well, Miranda Leewald was Stacy X, which is a play on X-Stacy, or Ecstasy, the mutant sex worker, who we once saw <clears throat> servicing former President of the United States Bill Clinton. Now, did you know that was originally supposed to be Rudy Giuliani in that scene? Getting the service, not giving it to old Bill, that is. Uh, this came out in the wake of 9-11, however, so Rudy was being seen as America's mayor at this point, and so I suppose Marvel decided to put their political biases aside for the greater good. Probably wouldn't happen in current year, but, uh, hey, points to him for back in the day. Anywho, Gene asked Jamie if he felt a bit of a tremor the night before, to which he says he did not. Gene assumes that she must have dreamt it then, and goes on with her commute to the Elsewhere Diner. Scenes shift, and we are at the Xavier Institute. The X-Men are still trying to figure out exactly what they're up against. Old Man Logan rattles off what they do know, and it pretty much comes down to the fact that Phoenix is back. Magic wonders if this also means that Jean is back. Logan says, hey, I never said that, because nobody knows. And I mean, let's be honest here. The Phoenix hasn't been gone all that long, right? At least relative to Jean, I mean. Jean's been dead since New X-Men number 150, which hit shelves in late 2003. So, I mean, that's almost 20 years ago. I think the last time we saw the Phoenix Force was during that horrendous X-Men snuff job that we know as AVX that ran for, like, felt like years. (laughs) 2010 to 2012 or whatever. Uh, Beast backs up Logan's statement. They know this is Phoenix, but that's all they know. He doesn't know why it would cause Cerebro to ping, however. Now, Kitty reveals that Cerebro has found some new signals worth investigating. Unfortunately, all their psychics are currently missing, and so nobody can actually operate the device to get any more information. A helpful editorial footnote refers us to Jean Grey number 10 to see what's going on with all the missing psychic ex-folks. What Kitty doesn't really pay attention to is the fact that there is one fella at this table who might be able to work the thing in its old man cable. Back to the Elsewhere Diner. Gene is chatting up a gray-haired customer who introduces himself as Eric. He says he's a friend of Gene's old teacher, to which she asks if he means Mr. Claremont, which is pretty cute. 
It's also worth noting that there's a tap at the diner labeled as Burns. So we have Claremont and Burn right in here. Uh, he asks what's good, and she suggests he order the lumberjack, and he's cool with that. Now, as they talk, he's stirring his coffee and playing with the spoon and making it bend. So this is either Magneto or Yuri Geller. Maybe they're the same guy. I don't know if I've seen them in, both in the same room before, so who knows? From here, we jump back to the Cerebro hub, and Cable is strapped in and ready to give it his best go. It takes him a while to feel anything, but when it hits him, it really hits him. He feels intense pain before the helmet overloads with feedback, which knocks him the F out. We jump back to the diner. Now, Jean is putting Eric's order in, and we see Annie from last issue, who I mistakenly assumed was just a regular patron of the Elsewhere Diner, when now it looks as though she's, you know, maybe she's the shift manager or something. Not that that really matters, I suppose. I don't know that we need to know the uh, the executive structure of the Elsewhere Diner. Uh, now, our fry cook, if I'm not mistaken, and I very well might be, appears to be John Proudstar. Now, Annie notices that Jean's not quite right and asks what's troubling her. To which, Jean reveals that she's been having some troubles of late. Nightmares, weird feelings, hallucinations. She seems to be coming around, you know? like she, It feels like she's breaking from the elsewhere delusion. She's becoming real again. Then the conversation shifts to Scott, who, according to Annie, is, quote, back in town. Now, Jean very nearly has a revelation here, but winds up distracted when the order for that lumberjack slam is up. And so she smears a big ol' smile across her face, scoops up the tray, and heads out to deliver it. Only, her patron seems to be no longer there. We jump back to Xavier's, and Kitty is giving orders. You remember how last issue they split into three teams to do some MacGuffining, right? Remember that? Well, this time they're splitting it to seven. They're going to use whatever information they were able to glean from Cable's brief use of Cerebro, and they're going to visit five different Phoenix-relevant locations while Beast and Jubilee will lead their teams out to try and track down the missing psychic mutants. Now, Kitty reminds the X-Men that the Phoenix Force can end all life on Earth, should it please. You know, like the asparaguses from back in the long ago. So, we have our orders, let's split up. We've got our gold team, and it consists of Kitty, Storm, Colossus, and Nightcrawler, and we see them at Jamaica Bay, which is, for many intents and purposes, the birthplace of the Phoenix, first place we ever saw her. We've got a silver team, and it's basically a smaller squad of the Weapon Xers. we got Old Man Logan, Domino, and Sabretooth, and they're hanging out at the ruins of Genosha. we got a black team, and it's Dazzler, Pixie, Shatterstar, and the no longer King Satan strong guy. Uh, they're walking the sewer system under Manhattan, probably roundabouts the Hellfire Club. The blue team is, well, same as it was last issue. Young Cyclops, Young Beast, Young Angel, Young Iceman, and Rogue. And they're at the Savage Land, which, man, I guess they pulled the short straw, huh? Because they must be so bored right now. I mean, the Savage Land is only on panel for, like, one single panel, but I'm already bored by it. Finally, we have our yellow team, and it consists of... Well, it's not young Iceman, but he's not really old Iceman. We'll just say Iceman. Iceman, Boom Boom, Longshot, X-23, Chamber, and I want to say Hellion? Maybe it's Hellion? I don't know. They're at the old ex-mansion, though Bobby suggests they'd be better off searching in my current stomping grounds of Arizona because, well, our state capital is Phoenix. But um bum Anywho, they run into Magneto. But not like current-day Magneto, who they more often than not are cool with. This is an evil Magneto. Though, I suppose on who's currently writing Magneto, this could very well be a current-year take. Who knows? So, they face off with Bobby trying to make this confrontation as smooth as possible by, ask, 
basically asking over and over again if they cool. You know, like, hey, hey, we cool? Hey, we cool, man? Magneto responds by suggesting that not all mutants deserve to inherit the Earth, which is to say, no, no, we ain't cool, man. Longshot, in his infinite wisdom, decides to throw several metal blades at Magneto. I mean, I mean, are you new here, man? Come on. Uh, the yellow team and Magneto break into a big old brouhaha at this point. Chamber manages to literally knock off Magneto's right arm with a blast of energy from his, you know, clavicle crater. But Magneto just goes and grows himself another right arm. He then orders a cup of coffee. Like, for real, Magneto orders a cup of coffee. Uh, Magneto then faces off with X-23, who he recognizes as being somewhat familiar. Laura, X-23, delivers a dropkick while snicting her toe claw, which goes right through uh, Magneto's dome, right? It goes, like, through his chin, up through the top of his head. You'd figure it would kill him, but instead it just makes him disappear. Uh, Boom Boom, you know, as the dust settles, confirms that, yeah, Magneto ordered a cup of coffee during their battle. Very strange, isn't it? Well, that takes us right back to the Elsewhere Diner. Our man Eric is back at the booth, waiting for his Lumberjack Slam to be delivered. Jean sees him, and she's shocked to see him back. He apologizes for jamming out on her, claiming that he saw some folks he knew walking by. But it turns out he didn't know all of them. Huh. Has Jean never met X-23? I want to say she has not. Um, Gene points out that uh, old Eric's got himself a bloody nose, to which he says it's an old war injury. Then we wrap things up with Gene looking outside, where she sees the entire area burning up under a bird-shaped flame. Looks like the uh, apocalypse has come to elsewhere. So uh, that's where we leave it. So how about we talk about it? Um, well, if you pardon the pun, um, this series does continue its slow burn, and uh, and I'm really, really digging it. Really and truly, this has been so much fun, and uh, it's funny because like we're almost halfway through at this point, and I hate the fact that we're already almost halfway through, which to me is a cynical and jaded <laughs> X-Men fan. Um, that's an odd sensation <laughs> to have. Um, now, we get a lot of stories, especially nowadays, that purport to be like love letters to certain comics, properties, characters, and concepts, Right. It's one of those things that I feel personally is uh, really reached a critical mass, you know. Uh, if we jump across the, well, not across the street anymore, but across the country to DC Comics here, they've had a lot of uh, big milestones of late in the past couple of years. We've had, you know, Action Comics 1000, Detective Comics 1000, uh, Detective Comics 1027, which is, you know, 1000 after Batman's first appearance. And a lot of these stories are... Love letter issues, where it's like you get a bunch of a bunch of creators in there who want to be part of this milestone issue, and it's it's just, hey, this is what makes this character great. Instead of actually telling a story, they just tell us something we already know, and I understand that. I certainly understand that. With this, we're in Marvel Legacy, right? Which is allegedly a celebration of Marvel's history, their lore, their legacy, if you will. And here we get this story, um, which we could probably look at as being something of a love letter to um, a certain era of the X-Men, certain characters of the X-Men, and it actually feels like one, you know? Um, But this is one that also has enough story meat to justify its existence. It's not just, 
hey, here's a bunch of pinups of Superman through the ages, and we're going to write some really, really purple prose around it to talk about how much we love this character. This feels more like all of the fan service elements are in service of not only the fan, but of the story. And, uh, I mean, let's not twist any words here. There is fan service here. That's for certain. But it's tempered with a really fun story and some mysteries that... Only speaking personally, they really have me on the hook. Uh, so often, when we see these um, celebrations of characters and the subsequent love letter stories, to me, they offer so little outside of the fan service. It's so little, what do they call them, member? Are they called member berries? Is that what we're calling them now? It seems like it's just that sort of thing. Uh, this, on the other hand, reminds me a bit of our look at House of X and Powers of X very early on, where... Here I am scouring, like, every panel to find hints, clues, and symbolism. Even if there aren't any, it just adds so much to the experience. And, I mean, I'm, I'm taking note of random numbers that we're getting in here just to try to solve something that probably doesn't need solving. You know, I'm making mental notes of these numbers that we're seeing. It's like, I wonder if that's a reference to something. Because, I mean, using, using numbers as references or as, you know, fan bait... It's easy, right? I mean, it's something that doesn't take a whole heck of a lot of effort, but you can still get some pops from the cheap seats from it. Now that said, let's uh, look at some of our callbacks and a little bit of the fan service before getting into the actual meat of the story here. Now, maybe it's Jamie Madrox as a landscaper. At least I'm assuming it's Madrox because I can't think of any other notable Jamies that Gene would know. Um, unless there's you know something in the Gene Gray story that I'm not aware of or I just forgot about. Uh, also, I can't believe we got a reference to Stacy X. I don't think that I've given that character a second thought in, like, well over a decade at this point. And it's funny, just, just you know, thinking about that character reminds me of how, how much I'd like to do a program, sort of like an X-lapsed relapse program, where I can discuss some of these older arcs, you know, stuff that I already read. And I mean, the Joe Casey into the Chuck Austin runs of Uncanny X-Men alone might make for some interesting chatter. And I figure if, you know, they decide when 2021 happens that maybe we add a couple more days to the week, then we might be able to do that. Uh, because I don't think anyone wants more than one episode out of me per day, and uh, that includes me. So, you know, we'll, we'll put a pin in that one. I appreciated the nods to Byrne and Claremont. I thought that was pretty neat, considering, I mean, they're the architects of so much of what we're looking at right now in this very issue, the whole Phoenix lore, right? They they planted those seeds, and it's nice to see them getting a little bit of a call out here. Uh, Proudstar as the short order cook was something. Uh, if it was, in fact, John Proudstar. I don't recall he and Gene being all that close. He was only around for, you know, a literal cup of coffee, and here he is, you know, at a place that serves coffee and uh, and breakfast foods. Uh, seeing the gold team at Jamaica Bay was nice. It's always cool to have a callback to that. Um, as was the weirdo Magneto versus the yellow team deal. I thought that was cool because it made me think. And if I'm going to hazard a guess, uh, I'm thinking that this Magneto is probably a manifestation of genes, right? Which would explain why he's kind of stuck in amber. Like, this could be the crazy evil Magneto from the post-posing-as-Zorn-slash-Zorn-posting-as-Magneto-Planet-X story. I don't even know which way that story goes anymore. They, 
it seemed so cut and dry before Morrison left. Um, but that would explain why he didn't know X-23, right? She didn't show up until after Gene was gone. Now let's get into some of the meat of the issue. Now the part that stands out most to me is the brief scene in the kitchen area of the Elsewhere Diner. And this goes back to everything being a manifestation of Jean's here, because Jean's talking herself through her thoughts, right? And she almost has a revelation, which may or may not have caused the entire Elsewhere to simply unravel, right? But she gets distracted and instantly snaps back into her happy-go-lucky waitress self. You know, I get the, uh, you know, to go back to my f- first point here, I get the feeling that all the citizens of Elsewhere are creations of genes who are who have been created in order to try to keep her distracted from real life. Because it seems as though every time real life starts to set in, she's distracted by someone, which returns her to a, I don't know, more placid state? Maybe helps to keep the fugue going? I don't know. Now, we still have plenty of questions, of course, right? Um, first, how did Jean survive? Right? We... we you know, we saw her pass at the end of uh, New X-Men number 150. Did she even die in the first place? Is she in whatever the hell the White Hot Room is? Because I still don't have all that great a beat on what the hot, what White Hot Room is. Uh, did she create the entirety of Elsewhere, or was she placed here? What, if any, is her connection to the Phoenix Force? I mean, so we've still got a ways to go here insofar as figuring things out, and to this point, I'm really, really digging it. Um, now, the scenes with the various X-teams, eh, not the strongest part of the issue, but they were a means to an end. Um, definitely not the stars of this show. I'm expecting to see far more of them as we continue through the back half of the event, which is fine. Um, I do hope that it's not just more of the, you know, split into squads and do the thing, because, I mean, that's... A little a little tropey. Um, but again, if that's my biggest concern, I'd say we're in a pretty good spot, right? Uh, one last thing before we go. Let's talk briefly about the art. Uh, I feel like it's been a minute since I'd last seen really anything out of Carlos Pacheco, and I was very happy to see him here. He's a wonderfully talented artist from a time in comics where I was very, very happy. <laughs> Not quite as jaded, nor as cynical as I am these days, Uh and uh, it really took me back to, um, I don't know, more uh, hopeful days in comics for me. And I swear we just don't see enough, quite enough of him these days. Uh, I'd like to see more uh, Carlos Pacheco work. But uh, that's pretty much all I got to say about the second issue of Phoenix Resurrection. And uh, I suppose we'll put a pin in it right there. Um, now, there has been some interest in my taking a look back at the colored books. I did mention... Uh, last episode that I was inspired to maybe give the blue, gold, red, and black books another try, and there appears to be some interest in that, so I'm going to try to figure out a way to do that, and uh, I will, you know, of course keep you all apprised as that comes together, but I'm really thinking that it might be time to, uh, you know, bury the hatchet with the era of uh, X-Men books that made me go running for the hills, so we'll see how that goes, we will see how that goes, uh, now, if you have any thoughts on this era of X-Books, this miniseries event in and of itself, please feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com as well as xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. 
You can chat us up on Facebook in our little group. 90s X-Men is what you had to search for there to find us. And you can check out the entirety of the Chris and Reggie channel audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me and uh, being on this Resurrexlaps journey with me. And uh, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode three of Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, where we're talking about, well, the third issue of Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey. We're about at the halfway point, or I guess we're exactly at the halfway point, considering that this uh, series has five issues. So uh, at some point in this third issue, we will be at the exact halfway point of this uh, miniseries event. So let's get right into it. This is, of course, The Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey, number three, which had a March 2018 cover date. The story is called Book Three, A Constellation of Them All, written by Matthew Rosenberg with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Lorenzo Ruggiero, colors Rachel Rosenberg, letters VCs Travis Lanham, edits Robinson Harrington, Shan Panizia, and no longer Alonzo, this is uh, C.B. Sobolski's first... Uh, First outing for us in uh, the editor-in-chief chair here, so I guess that seat change happened very early in 2018. I'd totally forgotten when it actually took place. It felt like it was both much longer ago and far more recent than that. Don't know. Anyway, cover price, $3.99. Went on sale January 10th of 2018. And uh, we open pretty hot here. Jean Grey, still in her waitress outfit, is attempting to land a shuttle, or at least traverse it through waves of radiation and flame. She winds up underwater and is slowly drowning. Initially, she calls out for help to Scott, to anyone who can hear her. But then she sort of just resigns herself to the fact that, uh, yeah, she's about to die. 
Just then, the scene shifts and Jean, still in her waitress uniform, is laid passed out on the floor of a grocery store after having stumbled into a stack of glass bottles full of, I don't know, maybe water, maybe something else. Really doesn't matter, it's wet. That's, that's what does matter. Uh, she's surrounded by a group of people, a few of whom are fairly recognizable as folks that we ought to know. I probably I really should get this out of the way here. Um, the art in this issue maybe isn't up to the standard that we you know that we've been seeing in the previous two issues. I'm not sure if this is a rush job. Uh, considering this was a weekly series, that can certainly happen, but it does make it a little bit tougher to point out some of the more obscure cameos here, um, if in fact they are. Uh, the folks that I think I can recognize here are Gateway and a purple-headed woman, or purple-haired woman. She doesn't have a purple head. Her hair is purple. And I'm guessing that's either Betsy or Quanan. I'm not sure uh, who had which gimmick back in the turn of 2018, so probably one of them. Not sure which. They all seem to know Jean, and they tell her to remain calm while they fetch Dr. Reyes to come take a look at her. But Jean panics a bit, pulls herself up, and rushes toward the door. From here, it's our double-page spread of credits, and then we get back into comics with a father and son fishing on Jamaica Bay. And, you know, I was going to make a joke about fishing on Jamaica Bay, but apparently it is quite the happening fishing spot. Who knew? Uh, anywho, they talk about how much they love fishing, but also how they're kind of bummed out that uh, they haven't caught anything just yet. Just then, they notice that it's uh, getting a bit warmer. And then, a bunch of dead fish start floating to the surface, followed by a bit of bubbling on the water's surface, uh, from which bursts, well, you know, a, a giant flaming bird. The father and son swim away from the capsized wreckage of their tiny little boat, both proclaiming that... Eh, maybe fishing just isn't so much their thing anymore. From here, we jump back to the elsewhere. Jean is rushing out of the grocery store, which is called Hammer Bay. Now, this is a reference to the capital city of Genosha. She rushes past an employee arranging shopping carts who... I'm not sure if we're supposed to recognize him. Um, he's bald, which... I, I, don't, I don't know. We, we do know a few prominent bald fellas, right? Doesn't look like Xavier, though. Uh, if anything, he looks more like Darwin from the Deadly Genesis team. His head is a bit lumpy. Maybe it's Caliban? Like old-school X-Factor-era emaciated Caliban? Then again, I mean, you know me. I, I look for things where they may not be, so for all I know, this is just nobody. Anyway, Jean fumbles with her keys, and she struggles to start her car. The bald cart guy checks on her to see if she's okay, and as much as she turns the key the car won't start. From here, we jump back to reality, and we join an amalgamated Coliforms X-Men team as they investigate the Cockrum Hill Cemetery. And I'm pretty sure I don't need to point out that reference, right? Uh, now, Kitty points out that the incidents of Phoenix-level weirdness are happening more and more frequently. And now, without the aid of Cerebro, they're going to actually have to pound some pavement to do their investigation. Now, Beast keeps referring to the entity behind all this weirdness as an it, which causes Danny Moonstar uh, to pause a bit. She's all, hey, you know, if it's Jean, it's not an it, it should be a she. To which Beast is not completely sold just yet, and would prefer not to get his hopes up. Finally, they reach the gravesite of Mrs. Gray Summers, and what they find is, well, an open and empty casket. So I'm guessing it's not the greatest of groundskeepers employed at Cockrum's, huh? Because, I mean, an open grave just there in the middle of a, you know, the great wide open, that's, 
something you'd think they'd notice. Now, this answers only some of the X-Men's questions. Well, maybe even less than that. Uh, they're still psychically blind, as all their psychics are still missing, and Cerebro is, as mentioned, still down. Now, Beast presses Kitty for some suggestions, to which she actually has one. There is a certain psychic that she's going to be calling on. Any guesses as to who that might be? Eh, well, we won't have to wait long. We're going to find out very soon. But first, back to elsewhere. Jean is having her car looked at by a Mr. Patch. You know, the owner of uh, Logan Tire and Auto. Yeah, that guy. She's overly concerned about this because her car has never given her problems before. It's never broken down. Mr. Patch doesn't think it's quite that big a deal. I mean, it is an old car, and this happens from time to time. It stands to reason, right? Jean, however, cannot stop worrying. And I tell you, I like this. I like this. It's subtle. But it's like a real like sign that whatever control that Jean might have over elsewhere, it might be starting to crumble here. I, I mean, if she can no longer keep even her construct car going, what does that mean for the actual world she seems to have manifested around her? Right? There's, there's cracks in this foundation, and, and I like the way that they're doing this. Now, Jean laments the fact that she feels as though she's on a downswing, you know, luck-wise. It's just been a bad few days, weeks, months even. Logan can't relate. He suggests that Jean needs, uh, she needs either a stiff drink or a stiff man. Which, I mean, as far as lines go, I've heard worse. I might have to keep that one in my back pocket for use at a later date. Now, Jean freaks out and winds up psychically hurling Mr. Patch across the garage. She immediately apologizes, which confuses our hairy little pervert mechanic. He says, hey, it was an earthquake. You have nothing to apologize for. Gene notices that Logan is hurt, but the healing factor, uh, he's A-OK just as quick. Now we jump back to the X-Men. Now they're at the Beaumont Hotel in London. Kitty and her crew are here to chat up that certain psychic. And I tell you, this is a, a bit of an underwhelming reveal, at least to me. A, because it's obvious, and B, because I wasn't aware that this character was estranged from the team in the first place. It's Emma Frost, by the way. Uh, Kitty informs Emma that Jean is back, to which Emma reveals that, uh, duh, I already know that. She mentions that she had a run-in with the Phoenix not too long ago, and a helpful editorial footnote points us over to Jean Grey number 10 for all the deets. Kitty asks if Emma can provide any assistance in the search, to which, Emma's like, there's not going to be a search because Emma knows exactly where Jean is hanging out. And she goes on to tell the X-Men that Jean is somewhere in New Mexico. Now, Kitty asks how Emma could possibly know any of that. And we learn that sometimes, while Emma and Cyclops were, well, banging, that his mind would wander, and he'd think about Jean and a plateau in New Mexico. And so Emma's certain that that's where Jean is currently hiding out, or doing whatever it is that she's doing there. So how about we go back there? Let's go back. And it's nighttime in the elsewhere, and Jean is walking home. Uh, she suddenly feels as though she's being followed, and so gets a bit of a spring in her step. It's soon pretty clear that, yes, she is being followed. Chased, in fact. Jean arrives home and locks the door behind her, but that ain't about to stop her pursuer. Before long, the entire place is bathed in flame, and we come to see that she's being chased by Phoenix. This is the green costume Phoenix, who thinks it's about time they sat down for a chat. Now, New Mexico. 
Kitty's led her team to uh, what appears to be a barren wasteland. There's literally nothing here, like nothing even on the horizon even. They all look around, growing increasingly annoyed that Frost sent them on what appears to be a wild goose chase. Now Kitty, after looking around, gathers the troops and tells everyone that uh, they're not going to waste any more of their time here. To which, Magic begins to feel something strange. And with that, she swipes with her soul sword, which appears to cut into the fabric of reality itself, revealing a great big glowing bubble that fills the canyon below. Looks like they might have just found their target, but we won't know that until next issue. So how about we talk about everything we learned here in uh, The Return of Jean Grey number three. I'll start by asking a question. Um, Have I already made the slow burn joke? Probably. I mean, I'm not that creative a guy, so I probably did. But yes, Phoenix Resurrection continues its slow burn toward its climax. I'm going to concede that this might be a little too slow for some, but I'm having an absolute blast with it. And I'm actually reading this in as close to like real time as I can figure it, which is to say this was a weekly comic back in you know 2018, and I'm reading these issues one per week. And I'm finding that the pacing is pretty great for a weekly book. And with each issue I finish, I can't wait to get the next one in my lap here. Um, Which, I mean, that's a win, right? That's the way these books ought to feel, right? I'm guessing that should this story be read in collected edition, it'd probably have a really, really good flow to it. And I'm finding that it has a really good flow week to week. But again, this might be too slow for some folks. My main takeaway here, which I did touch upon during our synopsis, was uh, Jean's reaction to the fact that she couldn't start her car. I think we pretty much know by now that the elsewhere is a Jean Grey construct, right? I mean, we're at least 90% sure at this point. Uh, We know that there's a bubble in a canyon, all this stuff, these these people whose Jean has surrounded herself with are people that she knows. This is her world, right? Now, last issue, we started to see Jean sort of come around, like bust out of the delusion, until she was distracted, which snapped her right back into her reality. And here, in the third issue, we see her not having control over objects in this world that up until this point, she'd always had. I mean, if you created your own reality, would there ever be a time in it where you would have to deal with car trouble? Probably not, right? So to me, this is a pretty big sign that either Jean's losing control of or synchronicity with this elsewhere. Though I will say, the scene between Jean and Mr. Patch, uh, even in a dream reality, I'm never going to come around to this pairing. Um, Though, I will tell you one thing, Mr. Patch sure is a sweet talker, isn't he? That was a pretty good line about a stiff man. Anyway, it was a... Into the real world here, it was nice seeing Beast being portrayed as more of a friend trying to digest and process loss than as a you know mad scientist like we've been seeing him of late. Because if you are following the shows on this channel, you know that we've been shoulders deep in Dawn of X, where Beast is high up on the list of the worst characters going, right? So it's nice to have a reminder of how good this guy can be. Uh, His reluctance to refer to the phoenix as a her rather than an it makes a lot of sense, right? He doesn't want to get his hopes up, nor does he want to attribute any potential, you know, fiery incidents to his friend. 
the Emma Frost reveal, as mentioned, was a little bit underwhelming for me personally. Again, that's no fault of the story. I just didn't see it as a big shock or anything. I mean, if Emma was around then, to my mind, it would stand to reason that the X-Men would call on her. Again, I don't know whether or not they've been estranged. I don't know how long they've been estranged. I don't know any of that. That's, that's all from stories that I skipped. For me, as an ex-lapsed reader, I just assumed that Emma was in, included in the gaggle of psychics that had gone missing. I didn't know that she was an outlier or a former member or barely an associate at this point. Then again, if we go back to read the color books, maybe we'll find out a little bit more about that. Maybe that comes out of the the Inhumans vs. X-Men thing. Maybe. I don't know. Because I, I, I didn't read all of that. That was painful. Uh, the art. Let's talk about the art here. Um, a bit of a letdown. Uh, it certainly wasn't Joe Bennett's best outing. It really didn't even look like his work. Um, maybe it was a rush job. Maybe. Um, maybe his pencils were overwhelmed by the inks. I don't know. I don't uh, I don't recognize the inker's name. I can't really point to where they might have worked before. Um, whatever the case, I felt it slipped a little bit visually, which, I mean, for an idiot like me who likes to get lost in background details and cameo pointing outing, is a little bit of a bummer. Overall, um, Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey number 3 was a solid, if not slow-moving, middle chapter for this story. Uh, I'm still having a great time with this. Though, as I mentioned a few times, I totally understand if folks feel like this might be a little too slow a burn. Uh, With all that said, I am still looking forward to digging our teeth into the back half of this, and finally, crossing it off our list and no longer being resurrect-slapsed anymore. I look forward to hearing some thoughts on whether or not you feel this is going a little too slow, or if you feel it's paced uh, appropriately. If uh, you do feel like letting me know, please feel free. You can find me on Twitter at AceComics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. If you're interested in seeing some blog posts and show notes, you can head over to Chris'sOnInfiniteArts.com, and uh, if you want to talk to us about this... That or the other thing, you can find us on Facebook. Our little group is called 90s X-Men, 90s X-Men, no hyphen. You can find the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. There you'll find thousands of hours of stuff, comics-related, mostly comics-related. I'd say 99% comics-related. You can find the entire X-Lapsed library there. You can find Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Moratory Mondays, The Young Animal and Sandman Gatherums, Comics Talk, Weird Comics History, a whole bunch of stuff. So probably something there you might dig. Uh, I think that's where we will leave it for today. A little bit of a shorter episode today. Um, This is a middle chapter. No matter how much I enjoyed and appreciated it, it's, you know, it is a middle chapter. So this was a lot of getting, you know, pieces into position. Like I said several times to this point, this might be a little slow for some, but uh, I hope you're enjoying the book if you are following along, and I hope you're enjoying the coverage as well. I want to thank everyone for sharing their time with me today, and as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, Episode 4. And uh, I think it's going to be one of those days. I've uh, just been staring at my laptop here, and instead of opening Audacity to record, I opened Skype. So I'm just sitting here staring at the screen, trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) It is the day after Christmas here, and I'm kind of tired, but uh, I am just kind of lost. So I finally figured it out. Close Skype out, open Audacity up, and uh, I think we're ready to go. But uh, now, if you are listening to this in real time, uh, today is my birthday. So this is my gift to you. Hopefully it's a good one. So let's get into it here. This is Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey, number four. It had a March 2018 cover date. The story is called Chapter 4, That a Great Princess Falls But Doth Not Die, which is... a uh, I don't know, a little precious, but let's uh, carry on. Uh, written by Matthew Rosenberg, with art by Ramon Rosanas, or Rosanas. Colors, Rachel Rosenberg, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Edits, Harrington, Robinson, Shan, Panicia, and Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale almost two years ago, January 24th, 2018. Almost three years ago, oh boy. Man, it does not feel like that long ago, does it? Now we open with uh, Jean lying in the fetal position amid the ruins of a wrecked building. Now, she wakes up and doesn't seem all that freaked out. Uh, She more or less takes it as though she just overslept a bit. You know, it's a regular day. She describes the scene as if it were her bedroom and not, you know, like a half-built post-apocalyptic bunker. Now she steps outside the door and suddenly she's back in Pleasantville and I think that's a movie reference for a movie I haven't seen, so I really can't say whether or not it's an accurate one. What I mean to say is, she's definitely back in the idyllic Elsewhere or Annandale on Hudson. She meets up with the postman, a Mr. Guthrie. This isn't Sam, but Josh. This is Icarus. Uh, They exchange pleasantries, but are interrupted by a weird, gurgling voice nearby. And this voice comes from Feral. She asks whether or not either of them saw that Gleason boy sniffing around her lawn. Now, Nick Gleason was Wolf Cub, a really, really bad character who probably only gets a mention because Brian K. Vaughan created him 20 years ago, and we gotta keep him around because of that. He was on the very unfortunate young X-Men team, uh, back when Marvel was really, really trying to push that young dot 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 prefix on us. If you remember, probably what, 2000. Nine-ish, probably. Anyway, it's here where the gimmick of the elsewhere really starts to show. Okay, because uh, in one panel, Feral is she's sitting in a lawn chair, but she's very she's very much dead, and she's also feral looking. You know, she has her very canine features, and she's speaking with a very gurgly word balloon. So it's kind of shaky. You could tell that there's something wrong with it. Then, in the second panel, it's the same, same exact image here, only she's alive, more human-looking, and her speech balloon is normal. So you see that there's a little bit of a duality here, right? Now, Jean starts walking to work, 
if you remember her car is in the shop now as she walks more of the gimmick of the elsewhere starts to come into view we see that she's like in the middle of the panel right and she's walking from left to right like this is like a, a 2d video game of some sort everything behind her is in flames right everything in front of her is idyllic and looks you know perfect and pristine and very uh, old-fashioned and just pretty now she passes by the former new mutant tag uh, he was part of the Marvel Tsunami New Mutants, or Academy X era, I suppose. Now, he rides past her on a bicycle, going from right to left. And as he passes her, he bursts into flames, because he is entering that burning world that's behind Jean. Jean then turns around to chat with Tag, and suddenly, the world behind her is normal. So everything to the left of her, or, you know, stage left, is normal. Everything she can view looks like Annandale on Hudson. Everything in front of her, you know, she did turn her head, is now burning. So, everything in this area, every, anything in this construct elsewhere is in flames, except for where Jean is looking. And, you know, we have seen instances during this series where the facade begins to crack. Like when, uh, when Magneto is in the diner and Jean looks out the window and it's just everything's in flames, right? It's never been made quite this clear uh, that, you know, exactly what we're looking at here. But I feel like this is very, very well done. From here, we go to credits and then we come back and we're in the New Mexico bubble or we're outside the New Mexico bubble. The X-Men are gathered around the weird glowing construct that Magic had uncovered with the Soul Sword last issue. And it suddenly manifests an opening like a door. Iceman suggests that this might mean that the Phoenix is kind of beckoning them inside. You know, she's inviting them in. Kitty reminds everyone how dangerous the Phoenix is, again, right? Uh, Hellion uh, does not give a single F. He just wants to go inside and tear stuff up. Beast, you know, tells him to settle down a little bit. To which Hellion is like, so what even is the plan then? Beast says they're just going to go inside and uh, say hello. Glob Herman, who's standing nearby, asks who might be crazy enough to head inside this bubble first, to which Snicked. Old Man Logan passes through. Inside, the entire place is in flames, right? The, this is a just a destroyed world inside this bubble here. And uh, while they lament the fact that Jean has been trapped here all this time, the X-Men find themselves attacked by a whole bunch of dead mutants. Now, here's a little bit more of the gimmick of the elsewhere. All the folks that we've seen are dead, or at least were dead back in, you know, late 2017, early 2018. This is something I did not immediately notice. Uh, I mean, this all went down during my hiatus, so I didn't know who was dead, who was alive, and uh, the meaning of anything here. Let's do a roll call for the dead folks, okay? We got Icarus again, Feral again, Petra Orsway, one of them, uh, Cyclops in his ugly post-AVX costume, Onyx, Wolf Cub again, Washout from that first awful Weapon X series, Rusty Friggin' Collins, Thunderbird, the first one, Wither, one of the Cuckoos, Vulcan, and Multiple Man. Now, the X-Men spend several pages fighting and uh, eviscerating their dead friends and family members. Uh, Old Man Logan seems to take particular joy in gutting 
several Madroxes in a row. He says uh, he's been looking forward to stabbing a Madrox ever since he showed up. And, uh, well, he gets more than his fill here. Suddenly, the X-Men can make something out on the horizon here. Amid all these flames, amid this, like, holocaust of just flame, fire, burning, smoke, they see the Elsewhere Diner. And it looks pristine, right? We actually see that it's called Annie's Diner. I don't know that we've seen a sign for this joint yet. Now, from it, they see Jean coming outside, and she's got, you know, she's taking out the garbage. Logan calls out to her, but Jean doesn't even know that they're there. All she sees is the idyllic elsewhere, not the flaming battlefield that the X-Men are currently occupying. We follow Jean back inside where she chats up Annie for a bit. She notes that it's been a very, very slow morning, and slow as in they haven't had a single customer. They talk, and then more of the veneer seems to crack. Um, Jean mentions her car breaking down. Then Annie, as though she's a skipping record or a scratch CD, mentions Logan's Garage over and over again. Like, you should go to Logan's Garage. You should spend time at Logan's Garage. You should take your car. It's really well done, but I still feel like it's kind of a missed opportunity. Um, I think they should have played a little bit more with the art during this scene. Because it just looks normal. I mean, if you were looking at this page without paying attention to the word balloons, it would just look like a normal page. There's no creepiness to it. There's no uncanniness to it. I feel like if we had some, I don't know, like Max Hedrum-style glitching, right? Where it's just like a little, you know? Uh, I think that would really amp up the mood for this scene. Jean then mentions that uh, she dreamed that she was chased by a goddess. But when the goddess caught up to her, it was her. And that was last issue's cliffhanger, if you remember. Now, Jean can't help but to think that this goddess is trying to prepare her for something. Annie says, wow, that sounds lovely. Now, back outside, Beast catches up and asks what he missed. Logan says, Jean took out the trash. To which, Beast tries to figure out the metaphor. Logan clarifies and just says, you know, Jean put garbage in a can. Which uh, made me made me actually chuckle. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but I, I like that that little scene there. Now Beast thinks he's got this all figured out, and this kinda comes out of nowhere. It's a big sort of aha dump here. Um, now this glowing mass that they're in, Beast has deduced that it's an egg. Okay. Now the Phoenix needs a new host, and so the Phoenix resurrected Gene for that role to merge. Uh, this process that we've been seeing inside this egg is something of an incubation process for Jean. So, Beast posits that the Phoenix created the Elsewhere and has filled it with bits and bobs to keep Jean occupied while, you know, she gets ready, while she cooks, while she incubates. So, I guess I was wrong about, uh, about Jean being the one responsible for the Elsewhere. I, I assume Jean did this to herself and uh, as a way of, like, protecting herself. And that it might have something to do with whatever the hell the white-hot room is. I still don't know. Uh, Beast confirms that this is a good news, bad news situation. Okay? Now, the good news is, Gene's alive. Duh, right? That's gotta be a good thing. The bad news is, if the Phoenix actually merges with Gene, well, then everybody dies, and maybe the world ends. So, bad days. From here, we jump back inside. Annie and Jean continue their chat. 
Annie asks if Jean feels prepared for whatever it is that this goddess wants her prepared for. Jean doesn't know. Back outside, the X-Men think a bit more about the weird manifestations they'd encountered over the past several issues. Beast has a conversation with himself. I, I mean, the young, uh, these young X-Men, the, the real Beast and the young Beast, they talk, okay? That's what I'm trying to get at. Now, they deduce that this phenomena that they'd faced were cries for help from Jean, like she knows that she needs help. If you remember back in the first issue, the X-Men faced off with, uh, you know, Seamus Mellencamp, a bunch of Hellfire goons, and Young Man Wolverine, Young Man Logan. Then Iceman's yellow team faced off against that weird Magneto who stopped fighting long enough to order a cup of coffee. So, I mean, these were dead characters, or dead characters at the time, anyway. Storm suggests that they get busy. They take care of Jean before the Phoenix takes care of them. And with that, a giant flaming bird lands atop Annie's diner. Rogue asks, what now? To which Old Man Logan says, well, now they kill a god. Kitty tries to get cooler heads to prevail and suggests that maybe they try and make contact with Jean first, right? Maybe they try to find their way through the, you know, the veneer here. Young Scott Summers volunteers to be the one to uh, approach Jean. Old Man Logan tells him that that is not a good idea. After all, Young Scott doesn't know this Jean, right? Young Scott wasn't even in love with this Jean. While Old Man Logan hasn't yet met a Jean that he didn't love, so it probably stands to reason he's the best choice. Now, Kitty backs Logan, because of course she does. And so, we wrap up this issue with Old Man Logan walking toward Annie's diner. He tells Kitty that, should this begin to go sideways, well, he knows what he'll have to do. That's where we leave it. This will be concluded next time on this very program in this very book. But, hey, let's talk about what we learned here, because we did learn quite a bit. And it's weird, uh, ever since I started covering this book, I was a little taken aback by the fact that this one didn't seem to quite land for many as it had for me. Our reaction online has been mostly folks telling me that they skipped this series because they didn't think it was important, or that they read it and just didn't think it was all that great. I've heard a lot of uh, mediocre or middling. <laughs> that seems to be the prevailing response that I've seen to uh, Phoenix Resurrection. And I didn't get that. And, I mean, if you've heard the last few episodes, you'll know that I was quite taken by this series. Uh, it was, to me, a very unexpected delight. It was everything I wanted it to be. You know, part mystery, part reunion, and, you know, a reunion inside the book as well as outside the book, because I was reuniting with a lot of these characters. And just a mix of odd and uncanny storytelling that really just pushed all the right buttons for me. With this issue, though... While I quite enjoyed it, it feel I feel like more than just the Phoenix's veneer is starting to crack. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like, clearly this is a comic book, right? I know that this is a comic book. But it feels like it took until this issue, at least for me, for the comic book itself to realize it was a comic book. Does that make any sense? Uh, probably not. Up until this point, right, we were slowly building this mystery. Here, I feel like we're reminded that, you know, hey, this is just a comic book. And so maybe the answers we get don't necessarily need to live up to our expectations. 
and again, I'm sure there are better ways to explain this, but uh, I'm not nearly as erudite as I'd like to be, so I'm doing the best I can. I did like this issue, okay? I did very much enjoy this. I'm guessing as part of a collected edition, this would appear to flow a bit better. But as a single issue, the pacing is very weird. Um, I'm projecting here, but it's almost as though they thought that this was going to be a six-issue miniseries and didn't realize it was a fiver until they were like halfway through this issue. I mean, that's when we stopped fighting and we were just... I mean, exposition and revelations just started pouring down on us like anvils, right? Um, It just feels like a very... A very sudden shift. We go from building and fighting to, oh, here are all the answers. Everything you wanted to know, bada bing, bada boom, right here. And, hey, we, we do get revelations. So let's talk about those, right? This idyllic version of Annandale on Hudson was a construct of the Phoenix Force as a sort of distraction or incubator for Gene. That, we, that much we find out from Beast's theories. I'm trying to recall here uh, whether or not the real Annandale on Hudson was completely destroyed by the Shi'ar during that third Claremont run. I know they came after the Grey family, and I know they like they, they slaughtered like almost all of them. Though I can't recall if the town itself was destroyed. So for all I can remember, this might be just another dead thing, right, That that the Phoenix is using here. Putting Jean in here because it wants to merge with her as a host and is incubating her, waiting for her to mature, I guess. Uh, just waiting for the right time, biding time. Now, this elsewhere it is a dead place. It's filled with then-dead X-Men and associates. Like I said during the synopsis, I didn't put two and two together here. Uh, many of these characters died while I was away. And, I mean, let's face it, dead, dead characters are brought back all the friggin' time, even before the resurrection protocols of Dawn of X were a thing. So it's hard to keep things straight. I mean, we're just two or three years removed from this book, and I couldn't tell you a single thing. It's it's almost like there should be a uh, like a comics dead or alive website or something. Though, if there were, we'd have to update the thing twice a day. So maybe maybe it's better that we don't have something like that. Um, what else about this issue? We could talk about the art. A very good looking issue. Very good-looking issue, um, and I love the way that they depicted like the duality of the elsewhere. In that uh, everything that Jean isn't currently looking at or focused on is burning. I think that's very, very neat. And for such a potentially abstract thing, it was very clearly depicted here. I really, really like this. It raised the uncanniness of the story to another level. That said, though, as mentioned during the synopsis, I feel like there were a few missed opportunities for, you know, glitches to manifest. Um, that Annie and Jean conversation, I really think that would have just been the perfect place to slip in, like I said, a weird, like, Max Hedrum stutter, you know? Just something to show how weird things were getting. Um, having Annie just repeat herself a couple times didn't quite land for me. By then, I mean, the jig was up for the reader, so you may as well go whole hog with the gimmick. Jean is only seeing what she wants to see anyway, so if we start seeing things that she doesn't see, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, and, like I said, it ups the creepiness. It ups the uncanniness of the book. And I think for a story that is, uh, 
as pseudo-abstract as this, that would have only helped. Um, that said, though, a perfectly fine issue. I'm still enjoying this series, and I'm still very much looking forward to seeing how it all shakes out. So, uh, that's that. <laughs> that is uh, Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed Episode 4 of 5. Uh, next time we will uh, wrap this baby up and uh, get, our, uh, get our gene back, I guess. So... Looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. If uh, anybody would like to reach out to me, you could do so. I'm at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You could talk to us on Facebook at 90sXmen. And you can listen to all the audio at ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Just one more of these to go, and then I'll have to figure out an all-new Sunday special. So uh, I don't have the foggiest idea what it might be. If anybody has any suggestions, please (laughs) reach out and let me know. Uh, But uh, till then, uh, I want to thank you all for uh, sharing your time with me this morning, and uh, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode five, the final episode of Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed here. Um, Probably not the last episode of Resurrects Lapsed in general. We will probably be, uh, well, uh, resurrecting it uh, sometime down the line to cover the return of Wolverine, which I don't know how he came back. I know he's back. I've seen him, but I don't know how he came back. I know how he died. It was kind of uh, unsatisfying, but... uh, I guess we'll get there when we get there. I don't know what the next Sunday series is going to be, but uh, that's something to lose sleep over another day. Let's get into today's book. This is Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey, number five. Had a March 2018 cover date. Our story is called Chapter 5, Be Thou Those Ends. Hmm, okay. Written by Matthew Rosenberg with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu and Joe Bennett. Inks by Jerry Allen Gillen and... 
Bellardino Bravo. Colors, Rachel Rosenberg. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Edits, Harrington Robinson, Shan Panizia, and Sabolski with a special thank you to Axel Alonso. This has a $5 cover price and went on sale January 31st of 2018. Now we pick up pretty much exactly where we left off last issue. We got old man Logan. He's about to enter the Elsewhere Diner. And he's there to uh, talk to Miss Jean Grey. And he's somehow able to make contact with her. Uh, maybe whatever it is that stopped her from being able to see him outside the diner isn't present inside the diner? I don't know. Whatever the case, he chats her up. And they have a fairly frustrating conversation where Jean tries to figure out why this weird man is so familiar to her. Their hands meet on the counter after Jean delivers Logan's coffee, and, uh, well, this isn't taken too kindly by Annie, who tells the old man to take a hike. To which, like you do, he uh, slices her throat out with his razor-sharp and unbreakable adamantium claws. I'll give you the caption version since the books no longer will. Now, Jean, as you might imagine, is pretty freaked out by the scene that she just watched play out before her. From here, single-page spread of creds. So, uh, we didn't need two pages of credits here, and big thumbs up for that. We resume, and we're outside with the amalgamated X-Men color guard. And they're all wondering where, they, where that great big flaming bird got off to, and, uh, then the ground beneath them begins to quake, so something's going on. Back inside, Jean is reading Logan the Riot Act for... You know, murdering her friend, and as far as she knows, an innocent woman. Then, suddenly, Annie stands up, and, uh, well, she's perfectly fine. Logan tells uh, Jean that not everything's as it seems, and, uh, well, then insults her coffee, which apparently tastes like some sort of bodily afterproduct, though we're not sure which. Jean and Logan then look each other in the eye, and, uh, bada bing, bada boom, Jean's memories begin flooding back. And I gotta say, uh, it kind of annoys me that Wolverine is the cure-all here. And I know that the real Cyclops is dead right now, but this just feels all sorts of wrong and, and kind of forced. I, if you listen to, uh, you know, Vanilla X-Lapsed, you'll know that uh, the Wolverine and Gene pairing is just not, not my favorite. So anytime I see it kind of being pushed, I'm going to react poorly to it. Anyway, that said, Gene's memory is returning... And as it does, the diner bursts into flames. It's, it's as though she can finally see everything that's going on around her. So, basically, there's nothing but fire. All the constructs are gone. And so, the next time we see her, she trots through the smoke and fire in a, in a new-look Phoenix outfit. Which, I tell you what, it's a very, very striking color combination here. It's, it's a black outfit with the accents are red. It's, it's really cool to look at. I, I kind of wish it stuck around rather than that weird, horrible thing that she wore in X-Men Red. She then leaps toward the X-Men, landing like Doomsday jumping into Metropolis, and she greets her friends, and she's also taken aback by how young Cyclops is because, you know, it's the other Cyclops, the young one, the one that uh, stuck around way too long. Just then... The Phoenix shows up. Also Annie. Jean confronts Annie, telling her that, uh, hey, you died as a child. And Annie's all, eh, no big. Because with the power of the Phoenix, Jean could bring them all back. To which we see Jean's parents and a whole bunch of notables and not-so-notables that Jean could very well bring back should she decide to merge with the Phoenix. And one Scott Summers is among the group. 
Jean refuses, claiming that the Phoenix has nothing more to offer her. But then, the actual Cyclops walks onto the scene. And this is the one with that horrible-looking post-Avengers vs. X-Men head sock. You know, the one where it's like actually an X over his eyes. Yeah, that one. I mean, they've put Cyclops in some pretty unfortunate costumes from time to time, but that one definitely takes the cake here. Upon seeing Scott, Jean makes a rather unfortunate face, which uh, you kind of have to see to believe. It's very, very unfortunate. Then she swipes Scott away, telling him back off. She then comes around to the idea that, uh, wait a minute, this Scott is not a mental trick, but it's the actual fella. And so, over the next handful of pages, we get a sort of confusing, sort of touching, sort of irritating husband and wife reunion. Jean apologizes for not being able to save him then or now, but she can't merge with the Phoenix, even if that means she won't be able to bring Scott back. And Scott understands. Then Jean suggests that, uh, you know what? They might both be better off dead. They tell each other that they, that they love each other, they kiss, and then Scott drops to the ground dead. Jean then turns to the Phoenix as though to ask, is that all you got? From here, we enter our endgame, and, uh, you guys know I've loved this series to this point, right? I've been, I've probably been overly positive about this one. It's something that I've actually gotten a little bit of feedback on being too positive about this one. But, and I hate to say it, our endgame here is rather unsatisfying. Basically, Gene spends several pages telling the Phoenix, no, go away. That, that, that's it. We do get some neat visuals. We see Jean in some different costumes. We see both her, uh, you know, dark and original recipe Phoenix outfit. We see her X-Factor gear, her Morrison New X-Men one, um, the Neil Adams one that she'll readopt for Hoxpox Docs. We don't see uh, the, you know, the Jim Lee stuff, but, I mean, you only had so many panels here, right? Now, the Phoenix, Phoenix is kind of annoyed, and it's all, you know, if we don't merge, you're eventually going to really die. And all your friends are going to die, too. And Gene says, uh, yeah, I know. Now go away. And so it does. Just like that. We close out the issue and the series with Gene knelt on the ground in front of a dead Cyclops, surrounded by Old Man Logan, Kitty, Beast, Iceman, and Storm. Beast welcomes her home. And that's it. No epilogue. No nothing. Just a note on the back cover to read X-Men Red for the next appearance of Jean Grey. Which I did. And that doesn't feel like much of an epilogue to this either. And that's, uh... I don't know, is it a good thing that I want more? Is that a positive? That I would like more of this story? It feels like it's not done. Oh, man. Well, let's talk about what we do get here, okay? We, we For me, personally, we do not get a satisfying ending. And, you know... A lot of the things that I'm a fan of aren't really known for their ability to give their consumers, their receivers, their fans satisfying conclusions. And it's something that we, or I, go into things expecting, right? I expect to be let down. I expect to have my expectations not met, or maybe my expectations are that I'm just not going to be satisfied. Now, besides comics, like... I'll play video games on occasion. 
Um, as much as I hate to say it, I still watch professional wrestling. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like none of these are really viewed as high art to the mainstream. And uh, it's like if you're disappointed by any of them, uh, you get this feeling and or response as if to say, well, it's insert hobby here. What did you expect? You know, it's comics. What did you expect? It's only comics. I think I'm so used to being disappointed by endings, conclusions, and revelations that uh, they just kind of happen to me. And I don't devote, like, a whole lot of brain space to dwelling on them. It's just like, okay, done, next thing, let's do it. Then there are some things that I enjoy that they always get me, right? I'll actually buy in, and I'll expect something more. I could watch the same episode of The Twilight Zone for the 800th time, right? And the first 10 minutes of it, it's like, oh, I'm all in. I'm all in. It's gonna. This is going to be great. Even though I've seen it, you know, Dozens, if not hundreds of times before. And then that third act hits, and it's like, oh, oh, it's aliens. Or, oh, it was humans all along. And you, and you kick yourself, or I kick myself for, like, for letting myself buy in. And that is probably the closest comparison that I can make to the Return of Jean Grey miniseries, because the first thing three and a half issues of it, I was all in. You, If you guys have listened to these previous episodes, you'll know I was all in on this. I was way, way positive on this. Last issue, issue four, the veneer started to crack a little bit. It was as though the story remembered that it's just a comic book. And it had to change from being very atmospheric, very mysterious, very eerie, very uncanny and it had to it had to do that pivot and turn back into a comic book and here with this uh fifth and final issue we're we're you know we're 100% into into just like comic book melodrama and that's not a bad thing that's not a bad thing i you know i came into the x men during the 90s which were very very angsty and uh, we saw the claremont hangover where it was very very soap operatic Loved it. This, though, I don't know what I was expecting. But, you know, several pages of Gene just saying, Go away, Phoenix. Go away, bird. And then the Phoenix saying, Okay, I'm out of here. That wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> um, I wanted something more. Um, but it's comics, right? It, what was I expecting? And now I understand why so many folks, when I started this uh, little side series, were um, kind of like, ooh, really? <laughs> you know? A lot of folks were very um, disinterested and uh, told me to prepare, f- prepare not to be impressed. And so when I was way, way impressed with the first several issues, it was... Uh, I was confused. I was thinking, I was wondering if I was reading something different because I was just so taken by it. Just thought it was such a such a great story for an era of X-Books that I really didn't care for. And even to the point where the use of the blue and the gold characters here made me want to go back and give them another shot. 
Even though they're what drove me from these books in the first place I was going to give them another shot Based on the strength of this miniseries And I mean, I'm I'm still interested in doing that um, Because even though I'm a bit let down by this ending I would say that the, the series as a whole I would call it a net positive um, Because I enjoyed it I enjoyed it It didn't meet my expectations But I don't even know what my expectations are at this point, right? I did enjoy it Even this issue, as much as I don't like the, you know, the Logan Ex Machina, right? Where it's always got to be Wolverine, you know, doing the, uh, doing the cool thing I didn't think it was bad um, Maybe he shouldn't have swiped that, that uh, Annie's throat out That was a little extreme <laughs> Maybe that was a little, a little much But, um I mean, it's Wolverine. He's got claws. You gotta, you gotta do the thing with the claws, right? But the rest of the issue was basically Gene talking to a bird, and uh, and then Cyclops shows up for you know a page and a half. I do know Cyclops comes back during Rosenberg's Uncanny Run, which, I mean, we might do an Uncanny X lapsed once we're caught up with Hawksbox Docs because I do very much want to see how that happened. If you've listened to these programs, you'll know Cyclops is my favorite, so. I'd really like to know how he came back I, I, I'm i not even 100% on how he died in the first place I know it happened with some sort of kerfuffle with the Inhumans But uh, the Inhumans are Christonite I, I, I can't deal with Inhumans <laughs> I really can't But uh, maybe one of these days we'll uh, I'll get to the bottom of it and, and we'll talk about it on the show Or one of the shows But uh, I am very interested in, in Rosenberg's Uncanny Run uh, Especially with as much... As I enjoyed uh, this run on the Return of Jean Grey for the most part Is a uh, writer who I probably wouldn't be able to pick out of a lineup before I read this And now I'm really, really intrigued to see what he did with the uh, the team in its entirety And now I'm sitting here wondering if it's like incredibly obvious to everyone listening That I have so little to say about this issue because there really isn't much to it Um... The art was uh, was good. It was good art, except for that one rather uh, odd panel of Jean Grey, which not not a good look. Other than that, though, zero complaints for the art. I thought it looked really, really good. Overall, though, um, as a concluding chapter, I mean, if you're reading this in collected edition, and this is you know this is a, a Chris Chestnut here. This is something I say a lot. If you're reading this as part of a collected edition. You may not even notice that there isn't a whole lot to this chapter If you're reading it all in one go, right? As we did read it chapter by chapter It's a little bit more apparent to us that This issue was devoted to the aha and a conversation with a bird So, as I've said probably a half dozen times already uh, Underwhelming, a little unsatisfying But overall, as a miniseries uh, The Return of Jean Grey was, uh, was a real good time I would recommend it. I would probably recommend it to read it all in one all in one go if you can get it in collected edition or however you get these books. I'd read them all in one go. I wouldn't space them out week to week like I did on this program. I think you'll get a lot more out of it, and um, maybe the seams will be a little bit less noticeable than they were here uh, doing this week to week. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I think I dragged this out as far as I can. <laughs> I want to thank everyone for. Sticking around if, in fact, you did. 
Uh, I'm not sure what the next Sunday special series is going to be on the channel. Uh, if anybody has any recommendations or suggestions, please feel free to let me know. And if you would like to let me know, there's a few ways you can do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Also by email, you can get me at 90sxmen at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can uh, go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We also have the X-Lapsed page, and all the Return of Jean Grey episodes will be there now. That is xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about X-Men, anything you want, really, at uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook. That's our little group. And you can listen to the entirety of the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I do those plugs, that's like the hundredth day in a row I've done those plugs, and I never get them out good, <laughs> or never get them out right. I always stumble. You should see my editing software here. The Audacity has so many lines on it, it's uh, it's it's got a lot of lines on it. I can't even think of a uh, something to compare it to, but it's got a lot of lines on it. But that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. One more great big thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me today. It really means, it means the world to me. It means more than it probably should. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the surprise return of Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. This is episode six, and I was going to say that uh, this is the final episode, but frankly, I'm not sure if it will be. Um, a funny thing happened to me about, well, about an hour ago. I'd already had the notes for this episode all done, all ready to go, and uh, the wife and I were out, and... I took the opportunity to pop in on a used bookstore and hit up their cheapo bins. And as I'm flipping through, I come across a book with the very familiar Phoenix Resurrection logo on it. And I thought for sure it must have just been a uh, variant cover or something. But in fact, it was not. 
It was a Phoenix Resurrection tie-in. It was the final issue of the Jean Grey series, Jean Grey number 11, which uh, I probably should be covering today and saving the book that we will be covering until next time. But, uh, well, I'm running very, very late. <laughs> this, uh, these notes are already done. Um, and so we're just gonna, we're gonna do this one first. Uh, we're going to be talking about the epilogue to Phoenix Resurrection here, a bridging issue, the bridge between Phoenix Resurrection number 5 and X-Men Red number 1. Now, this is the X-Men Red Annual number 1, and before we get into it here, I'd like to talk a little bit about X-Men Red. Now, X-Men Red is the uh, Tom Taylor series, um, and the one color book that uh, folks seem to really... Uh, in great number, look back on with fondness and feel as though uh, there was a loss when it went away. Now, like, blue and gold kind of ran their course, but red, people seem to really, really miss red. Um, and it was the book that I was always told that I ought to check out by folks who knew me and knew that I was a an X-Men fan or a, I guess, lapsed X-Men fan at the time because I had dropped out during the blue and gold days. Uh, the Red Book was always just one that people told me I should take a look at. And uh, it's funny, because the issue we're going to be discussing today, this isn't the first time I've read it. Because uh, I actually did read this. I was asked to be on a podcast. Uh, a friend of mine has a podcast, or had a podcast, several years ago. I guess it would be like about two and a half years ago. And knowing I was an X-Men fan, asked if I would come on and talk about an X-Book and... Although I told him I hadn't read an X-Book in quite some time, he just asked if I would, so I did. And that book was X-Men Red Annual number 1. And boy, howdy, did I hate it. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't read it with any, any sort of context that might be necessary. Um, I found Gene to be especially uh, unpleasant to read. And uh, there was that one page, or a couple of pages, actually, the uh, the hot dog pages. The hot dog pages, which, at the time, I read these hot dog pages, and we're going to get to the hot dog pages before long, but uh, it totally turned me off. I, I don't think I could allow myself to enjoy anything that came after it, because it was just that cringy a scene, that horrible a scene. And we're going to cover it, so you'll you'll see just how cringy... And awful this scene is uh, You may not believe it But it's uh, it's really, really bad So I'm on this show And I'm talking about X-Men Red And I won't shut up about this hot dog scene I just go on and on and on about this I, I barely talk about anything else in the book Just how much I hated the hot dog scene And I might be overselling it here because it's really not that big a deal. It's just a stupid scene. But I was just so up my own ass. I was just like, I can't get past it. (laughs) And I must have ranted about that page for many, many minutes. And, uh, you know, it isn't often that I'll do a show and when it's time to get up and leave the mic that I feel like I did a really rotten job. Uh, We all have our off days, right? I mean... Even the best of us have uh, have bad days behind the mic. Um, and in fact, that was a bad day behind the mic for me. When As uh, soon as I was done with it, I was like, man, I really did every fan of this book, the writer of this book, I did this entire book a disservice. 
And, uh, you know, I was, I think someone was smiling on me that day because about an hour later, I got a text from this fellow who I was doing the show with, and he said the recording was corrupted. So uh, he wouldn't be able to, to upload it. And I, you know, secretly fist pumped and I was happy and <laughs> so pleased that uh, my horrible performance was not going to be uh, unleashed upon the world because I wouldn't shut up about a scene that, uh, well, we're going to talk about uh, in just a few minutes here. So let's get right into it. This is X-Men Red Annual number one. At a July 2018 cover date, written by Tom Taylor with art by Pascal Alix, or Alixe. Colors, Chris Sotomayor, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, edits, Bisa, Harrington, Panitia, White, Sabolski. With special thanks to Mike O'Sullivan and Stuart Vandrell. Cover price, $5, went on sale May 30th of 2018. And we open with a montage. You know, Jean Grey, she was the phoenix, so, so I... I Guess that's the version we're going with now. Gotta ask, are any of us clear on whether or not she was or wasn't the Phoenix? Or was like she she the Phoenix except for the time when Phoenix was killing the asparaguses? I don't think we're supposed to think too hard about it, and I'll try my best not to. Anyway, Jean was the Phoenix, then she died. And this is referring to the only time that she really died at the end of the Morrison run. And uh, we see all of our characters there in their Morrison-era costumes in this panel uh, where she dies. So, Jean was Phoenix, then she died, and now she's back. And perhaps she's in her ugliest costume ever, because her X-Men Red costume is horrid. Uh, Also, she wants to change the world. She wants the world to change. From here we get our double-page spread of creds with our roll call. It's Jean Grey, of course, Nightcrawler, Trinary, or Trinary, who I don't think is actually in this issue, Wolverine, which is to say X-23, and Honey Badger. All right, so with our preamble out of the way, we go right back to the end of Phoenix Resurrection, the return of Jean Grey number five. Jean's alive, and she's surrounded by a bunch of her old friends and teammates. And well, you know, before we get into the scene itself... I hate doing this, I hate saying this, but here is where the art kind of drives right off the bridge. And yeah, this is only the second page of actual story here. Uh, These characters are ugly. Uh, Jean's face looks like a partially melted candle. Uh, Expressions on all the characters' faces are almost scarily exaggerated here. It looks like Kitty Pride might have been knocked with, like, the Joker gas here. Just such a horrid smile. Not pleasant to look at. And it uh, only gets worse from here. Okay, so Jean's back. And initially, her pals are all kind of scared. But that soon passes, and they gather in for a big group hug. Now, she looks around, and she's filled in on some of the goings-on in X-Land since she left it. And I'm glad that we don't linger too long on this, and uh, we don't actually get any specifics. We just see Jean reacting, which is fine. I mean... Though, it probably would have been nicer had Jean not been drawn to look like a melting candle. But we we can't have everything. Then, she spots Old Man Logan. And thankfully, we get this scene out of the way early. Though I gotta say, Jean comes across like kind of a jerk here. Logan extends his hand and says, Yeah, I'm Logan, just not your Logan. To which Jean replies, I'm Jean, and I was never yours. Really? That feels like needlessly adversarial, doesn't it? I mean, of course, they didn't know this at the time, but, I mean, 
in our current Hox Pox Docs books, uh, she and Logan are banging in hot tubs. I mean, the other Logan. Whatever it is. I did not care for this. This felt needlessly antagonistic. Um, I don't know if they're trying to prove something here. It It just didn't feel right to me. Now, finally, Nightcrawler pops over and asks Jean if she'd like to go home. And Jean would, presumably leaving all of their friends behind in the middle of the New Mexico desert. They bamf away to the Xavier Institute of Cosmetology, Dermatology, and Dentistry in Central Park. There, Jean learns that for a while, the place was named after her. This was, of course, during the Wolverine and the X-Men run. And she finds this touching to the point where it's kind of overwhelming... Too bad the art just makes it look like she really, really needs to find a bathroom. Okay, now the scene happens. This is the scene. Some asshole throws a perfectly good hot dog at Nightcrawler while being a boilerplate mutant-phobic. Gene freezes the dog in the air, and uh, Nightcrawler grabs it, takes a bite, and, oh lord, he proclaims that it tastes like, quote, mustard and bigotry. So much for it being a perfectly good hot dog. Uh, first, never, ever put mustard on a hot dog. I don't even let, let mustard in my house. Never. Also, you probably don't want to have bigotry in your recipes, so it's a double whammy. But how about we talk about how stupid and baity this uh, line is here? Uh, like, this strikes me as uh, you know that sort of page, where the writer is kind of patting themselves on the back after writing it knowing that there's going to be like a legion of fans of the LOL random type of humor that'll plop this thing all over social media. And I mean, that's exactly how I felt about it when I saw it in 2018. I mean, this is really bad. Uh, Nightcrawler here, he doesn't speak like an adult here. Um, you know, he, th- this this asshole throws the hot dog, Gene freezes it, Nightcrawler looks at it, and he like smugly comments, well, that's a thing. And then the LOL random mustard and bigotry line? Come on. I mean, aren't there younger, dumber ex-characters who could have said those lines? Just awful. But we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Gene then flips out on this bigot, publicly doxing him, telling him all about his life in front of a group of witnesses. Then she has her own dumbass line. She says, You could have not picked a worse time to come at me and my friends with... A bun full of processed meat and intolerance. Really? I, I, I beg your indulgence here. Say that line out loud. A bun full of processed meat and intolerance. It might actually be worse than Nightcrawler's line. And it's something that no human should or ever has said. It's just rotten. She then tells the bigot to go home and learn something, and then she psychically sends away all the looky-loos, which seems more like something Professor Xavier would do. Uh, Is this the newer, tougher, take-no-nonsense gene that uh, we've heard so much about? Because if you ask me, she just seems like someone so unpleasant I don't really want to read about her. There's kind of an overcorrection here, you know? It's... Alright, let's move on. Gene then enters the mansion in order to chat up Rachel who I swear, when I first glanced at this page, I thought she was sitting on a toilet. The art here, in addition to ugly, melty faces, uh, we've got some very stilted and stiff poses here. Rachel literally looks as though she's on a toilet. Now, she and Jean have an awkward reunion, 
And honestly, I'm trying to think of a time when I recall them having any sort of meaningful one-on-one time together. Maybe you guys can help me out there. I can't think a whole lot of it. Though, it is worth noting, for a while, Rachel was going by the surname Gray instead of Summers. Maybe we're not supposed to remember that. Now, Jean suggests that they don't speak. They just lower their defenses and allow whatever is going to happen to take its course. And so next we know the redheads are in flight together, and they're all smiles. We find out that they're headed to X-23's place. Jean's never met her and would really like to, since uh, she's part of Logan. You know, the the guy she never belonged to. So uh, it's not long before they arrive. And so they do. And when they do, X-23 is pretty unimpressed with Jean and makes sure to ask her not to invade her mind. Seems like she's got some experience with the time-displaced teen Jean, who seemingly couldn't help but to invade minds. And Jean agrees not to get all up in her business. Then, Gabby shows up. And, you know, I don't think that I've ever read anything with Honey Badger in it before. Now, she is starstruck that friggin' Jean Grey is alive, well, and sitting on their couch. So, she's like a fangirl character, then? Yeah, whatever she is, she's quite annoying. She asks Jean to guess what she's thinking, and Jean does, and it becomes a little bit of a gag over the next couple of pages. Jean tells Laura what she's got planned, and uh, X-23 suits up, telling Jean that she's coming with. Gabby wants to go too, but is told to stay behind with her wildebeest, or whatever the hell thing she's got there. So now, where are they headed? Well, I'm glad you asked. They're actually heading to the most boring place in the universe. New Adelin, or Attilan, home of the most boring people in the universe, the Inhumans. Now, upon arrival, they're met by Black Bolt and Lockjaw. The former immediately goes on the offensive, and, you know, considering his past with the X-Men, I don't think I can blame him all that much. It's worth noting, or maybe it's not, but the art becomes spectacularly ugly here. Uh, We get a two-page spread consisting of three large panels, and you almost gotta see them. In in one, the one all the way on the right, it looks like Jean is sitting on an imaginary toilet. I I don't know what it is with Pascal Alix in this pose, but like this, like, seated pose with like a strained look on their face, this is unpleasant stuff. Maybe they're just doing like hovering chair, the uh, yoga position, I don't know. Now after a bit of a skirmish, Jean is able to convince the Inhumans that she's not here to do any harm. And so she and Black Bolt go for a stroll. Along the way, she shows him everything that's in her mind, all the times that she's spent with Scott, Logan, the Professor, the X-Men, all the stuff. She tells him that pieces of her mind are spread all over the place. Even as they speak, she's part of her is with her friends, part of her is with Honey Badger, and she's even with that hot dog hurling jack-off. Uh, She's with them all because she wants to protect them all. Black Bolt says via Jean's telepathy, What do you need from me? Which I guess is a pretty valid question. Jean tells Black Bolt that she needs him to speak. There's something she needs him to say. And he reminds her that he cannot do that. And so Jean asks him to do so by using her voice. What this comes down to is Black Bolt apologizing for Marvel's horrible and dunderheaded editorial edict that attempted and failed to promote the Inhumans over the X-Men. He then says, don't worry, Axel Alonso has already been fired. And Gene smiles broadly. Okay, that didn't happen. He does apologize, though. He apologizes for 
the Terrigan mists, all that kind of stuff here. He just says he's sorry. He doesn't really specify for what he's sorry for. It's one of those situations where he's probably just sorry for everything. We move on, and we next join Jean in her awful X-Men red costume, standing before Scott Summers' grave, where we recently found out during X-Labs the Nation that Scott ain't even buried there. Now, she tells him that she's going to change the world and only wishes they could have done so together. Then, the wrap-up, where Rachel is psychically assaulted by Cassandra Nova, which is a direct lead-in to X-Men Red number 1, even though this annual came out between X-Men Red number 4 and 5. But, that's that. So how about we talk about it? I didn't care for it. I didn't care for for this one bit. Um, It was ugly. It was kind of up its own ass. Um... You know, we, we change Jean from the, you know, the sort of like X-Men Den Mother role into this new sort of iteration here. She's not going to be defined as Cyclops' wife. She's going to be defined as her own person here. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. But the polar opposite of Den Mother shouldn't be unpleasant asshole. And that's kind of the feeling I got from Jean in this issue here. Granted, I don't have the context for the rest of the X-Men Red book, you know, the actual 1 through 11 or whatever it is. Maybe she was depicted a lot better there. Maybe she was depicted a lot more even keel there. But here, she just felt needlessly adversarial and just unpleasant. Um, Also, this Inhumans thing feels a little bit pointless. Um, I mean, Death of X and Inhumans vs. X-Men was already a couple years old at this point. And I'm not sure why we want to dredge that up again here Because my my memories of Death of X and IVX um, I don't think that they're first-hand memories here I, 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 I know I flipped through them and I could swear I read them But uh, the more I hear about them, the more I'm thinking that either I dreamt that I read them Or I blocked them out of my memory But when I do think back to it As much as I care for the X-Men and as much as I couldn't care less about the Inhumans, one thing I think I can say about it is neither side came out of that looking good. The Inhumans didn't look good. The X-Men did not look good. It was, I mean, the Inhumans unleashed toxic Terrigan mists, right? Then Emma Frost killed a whole bunch of Inhumans in in the name of, uh, you know, Cyclops there. It's just a net negative for everyone involved And probably one of those stories that it'd be best not to really dwell on And you know, I get that Jean's upset But this comes across as like a very selfish act To get closure on a terrible situation that she wasn't even a part of And for the most part was just done, you know Just opening a weird and unnecessary can of worms that Who's it gonna help? I, I I get why they would want her to do this, but I, I don't see I don't see the benefit as I guess is what I'm saying. I think if this was truly to be an epilogue of uh of Phoenix Resurrection, we should have seen more of Jean with uh those closest to her. Um the opening pages were fine. Uh, up until Kurt, you know, bamps them back to Central Park, leaving all their friends behind, which <laughs> feels very, very strange uh, All these people were just so happy that Jean's here And then she just bugs out And, and leaves It just doesn't strike me as something uh, Jean would do upon returning from the dead 
after being gone for quite a while and being caught up on everything that went on and then just be like, okay, peace out, I'm, I'm leaving. And, of course, that leads to the hot dog scene, which I'm not going to talk about anymore. Suffice it to say, I hated it. I don't think it did anybody any favors. I feel like it was retweet bait at best and just uh, horrendously misguided at worst. Just not a good scene. A lot of the drama felt manufactured. Uh, I would... You know, I think I would get that there would be a little bit of tension between Rachel and Jean, though I couldn't tell you why. Outside of the obvious, just, you know, this is an alternate future daughter of Jean. Okay, that's that's like, it's not anybody's fault, you know? I, I don't know. It just felt very manufactured, the tension here, and... I feel like it was just there to facilitate Cassandra Nova getting into Rachel's mind at the end, which, I mean, fair play, whatever. But uh, I didn't really feel any sort of uh, genuine emotion or genuine feelings um, in their scene together, where it could have been something special, but instead it was uh, very superficial. And I think it uh, deserved better. If we're gonna, If we're going to focus on the relationship between Rachel and Jean, then focus on it. You know, don't just uh, cop out and be like, yeah, let's not talk. And the next panel, they're just smiling. I don't know. Just didn't feel didn't didn't feel right to me here. I, and I mean, this is an annual. And annuals are half the time they are just page filler, right? I mean, there's stories that you can't fit anywhere else, or you wouldn't want to fit in the middle of a regular story, so you just put them there. And that's kind of what we get here. Uh, one last thing. I mentioned it as we went through the issue, but the art here was uh, not pleasant. And I hate saying that because the world's better than anything I can do. I'm not like a art critic, uh, any legit sort of uh, art critic, but I know what I like and I know what I don't. And uh, after the first page, I did not like this. The first page looked really good. It really did. Um, then uh, everybody's faces turned to melting candles. And they got into these like weird, you know, weird tense um, poses and just uh, not pleasant to look at. And I mean, if you ask me, not all that pleasant to read. So uh, it would have been nice to wrap up the look into Phoenix Resurrection on a higher note or a nicer note. Hell, we still might if we do that Jean Grey issue next time out. But uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't a fan of this. It doesn't inspire me to read X Men Red. Um, though I, I, I'm sure I will at some point, but uh, this doesn't make me want to. It doesn't make me make me excited to, which is a shame because I'd heard so many good things about it. I this is one of those books where it's like I say it's you know it's not you it's me you know maybe I'm just incapable of enjoying this where everybody else can and everybody else should and perhaps maybe I should too but I just can't. Uh, can't bring myself to do it, but we'll see. Maybe one of these days we'll revisit X-Men Red, and hopefully I'll be able to see what all the hubbub is all about here and just uh, kind of cross the annual off the list as an anomaly. I'm hoping that's the case, but um, if you agree or disagree, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, you could find me a few different ways if you'd like to. You'd find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. 
You could find us on Facebook and chat us up about whatever you'd like at 90s X-Men. That's our little group. And uh, you could find all the Chris and Reggie noise you want at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, I suppose that's uh, where we'll put a pin in it for today. Um, I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. And uh, till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.